how many of you, by show of hands, like options? I love options when it comes to restaurants. Uh, how many of you guys, when you ask your wife, hey, where do you want to eat tonight? She gives you a very quick and immediate answer right off the bat. It's really easy to count the hands. I, sometimes there's too many options. I don't like restaurants that have a menu that has like 58,000 options. You know, you ever been to the Cheesecake Factory? And you get to like, good, it's like the Encyclopedia Botanica. I don't know what's happening right now. Options. I love fall in Tennessee because it's cool in the morning. It's warm. You have options. Do I want to wear a hoodie? Do I want to wear a jacket? Do I want to wear a vest? Do I want to wear shorts? Do I want to wear I love, I don't want to wear a scarf. I love, I'm a scarf guy. Don't judge me. Do I want to wear a scarf? I spent 40 years in Houston. You didn't have any options. It was so hot some days. I think the Holy Spirit was like, I'm out. Just good luck. <laughs> So I, lo I love options. Options are a lot of fun. When you get to the Bible today in Colossians chapter 3, Paul doesn't give you a lot of options. He's talking to the church, and one thing he will point out is, hey, we don't go to church. We are the church. And because we are the church, there's not a lot of options on how we should actually treat one another. God has changed your life and changed your heart. Therefore, you should live and act with one another this way. So when it comes to how we love and treat one another, there's not a lot of options because we're the church. And we're in a series called DXD, our disciple-making series, where we've been looking at five G's that define a disciple that multiplied disciples. That's gather, give, go, groups, and gospel conversations. We're looking at those. And today we're, we're talking about gather. What does it mean to gather as the body of Christ? We don't go to church. We are the church. And as the church, when we gather, Paul says, hey, this is how you love and treat one another. Because there's not a lot of options. We, we follow Jesus and love like he loves. So we're going to be in Colossians chapter 3. It's one of the New Testament books that Paul wrote. Open your Bibles now to Colossians chapter 3 and stand with me out of honor of reading God's word. Colossians chapter 3. I'm going to read verse 14 and 15 to begin our time. Paul says this, Above all, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity, and let the peace of Christ, to which you were also called in one body, rule your hearts, and be thankful. Lord, we want to be disciples that multiply disciples, and we want to know how to live and love one another well, and we want to gather as your body and then scatter as your body in word and deed to the goodness and glory of Jesus. And everybody said? Amen. So Paul is writing to a church that he planted, and he's celebrating the good news of the gospel and how it changes lives. The gospel is so good that Paul gave up everything in his life just to have it. He found peace and purpose. He found a family, and Jesus had changed Paul's life. If you're a follower of Jesus, he's changed your life. And because of the change in our life, Paul is going to tell us how to live and function as a new family, the body of Christ. And we're going to jump back, and we'll dig into verse 12. And Paul says this. What's the first word? So anytime the old preacher joke, if you get to a passage of Scripture that begins with therefore, you got to ask what the therefore is there for. So why does he say therefore? Well, he, if you go back to verses 1 through 11, 
Paul is describing a major contrast from what was to what is. Paul, in verses 1 through 11, is talking about things that followers of Jesus should put off. Put off idolatry, greed, anger, malice, slander. Put off these things. And now, in the next couple of verses, he's going to describe what to put on. So he's telling you put off, and now, therefore, you put on. Some of you, when you come home at the end of the day, it's been busy, maybe chaotic at work. You get home, the solitude of your home, and you change clothes. Show of hands, how many of y'all change clothes when you get home? Kind of decompress into your favorite clothes when you get home. And I had, had these pair of sweatpants that I had for years that I loved. Kim hated. I don't know what happened to them, but they're gone. They were my man pants. They were my mans. And man, I would get home and I would just, man, they were so nice. She hated them. I loved them. You, I would change clothes. And the same way we change clothes, Paul is saying there's been a change in you if you're a follower of Jesus. You've gotten a new heart. You're a new creation. Therefore, your lives should look different. So, therefore, as God's chosen ones, holy and dearly loved. Now, I want you to pay a lot of attention to verse 12 because chosen, holy, and beloved are power-packed words. But this is the only place in the New Testament where these three ideas are linked together. It's power-packed. It's beautiful because Paul's going to tell us what to do down here in just a moment, but before he tells us what to do, he tells you who you are, chosen, holy, and dearly loved. So here's what I want you to write down today. Big idea. Your identity drives your action. Who you are determines what you do. Your identity drives your action. Many of you Maybe had a similar experience growing up in my house. I can remember my dad saying, no, son, we're, we're Owens. We, we don't do that. We're Owens. That's not what we do. No, no, hey, we're Owens. We, we do this. And so Paul's going to say, hey, you're, you're chosen. You're holy. You're dearly loved. That's who you are. And because of who you are, this is what you do. Your identity drives your action. And you don't have to achieve that identity. It's given to you. It's declared over you. This is who you are. And Paul says, I want you to know that before I tell you what to do because your identity drives your action. Look back at verse 12. Here is your identity. Chosen ones, holy, dearly loved. And this, this word chosen is spectacular because you didn't earn it. God looked down and says, I want that one chosen. Well, wait, why are some chosen and some not? We don't have time to get into that this morning. Let's just celebrate the fact that it's good news that we're chosen. Amen? Amen. Chosen. I've been married for 25 years as of August 1st, and I still can't get over the fact that Kim chose me. I outpunted my coverage so far. When I introduce her to others as my wife, there's normally an audible Really? I'm like, I'm like, stop standing right here. You know that, right? I'm still floored that she would choose me all these years later. I'm more floored even that God chose me because you don't know me like I know me. I know me. God chose me. It's, it's incredible. And some of you, 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 you're like me. Let me ask you a question. Don't, don't you ever just get tired of you? Because no one knows you like you. You just get tired of yourself. But even in the darkest of moments, 
God still chose you. While you were yet sinners, Christ died for you. And Paul reminds you, you've been chosen. And because you've been chosen, you're holy, which is probably not on your Instagram bio, holy. But that means set apart, special, sacred. So because you were chosen, you've been set apart to be holy, set apart. Same reason why holiday, holy days, holidays are special days in the year that we set apart. God says, no, you're, you're chosen and you're special. I've, I'm, I'm setting you apart. And then and he says, dearly loved. And, mm, I love that. You cannot hear that enough. Your heavenly Father declaring over you, you're loved. You can't ever hear it enough. That's why from, with our kids from the earliest days on, we would look at them and say, I love you. There's nothing you can do about it. Doesn't matter where you go, what you do, what you've done. I'm going to love you. You can't outrun. You can't lose. You can't. I'm going to love you. And that's just a small picture to the Father's love. And we, we need this because so many feel unloved. We feel rejected. We don't feel set apart. We don't feel lovely. But in those moments, we, like, we rest in the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. And honestly, listen, like the fact that you are loved, that is some of the deepest waters in Scripture. Some of you right now are trying to figure out how many nails are in the ark, and when is this, and when is that. Listen, some of the richest theology you'll ever get your mind around is the love of God for you. One of the greatest theologians in the last century, Warfield, wrote volumes of commentaries, was asked this question, Mr. Warfield, what is the greatest truth that you have found, that you've written on, that you've studied, that you have dwelt upon, that you have thought about in this life? What's the greatest truth, Mr. Warfield? And here's what he said. Jesus loves me. See, if you don't get that he loves you, then on the days when you struggle on the days when the accuser whispers into your ear, you're worthless, you're a failure, you're unlovely. When you forget that he loves you, you you're going to have all this energy trying to prove and make yourself seem lovable. But you can't because we're absolutely sinful which is what makes God and the gospel so spectacular that he chose us and made us holy and loves us. I want to think, think about it this way. Look, look at Hebrews. Some of you know this verse. It says, let us run with endurance the race that lies before us, keeping our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, for the what's the word? Joy that lay before him. He did what? Endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Now, I don't know how familiar you are with the Roman cross, but they're not historically known for joy. In fact, that whole journey to the cross was miserable. On the night that Jesus was arrested, he was betrayed by one of his very own. He was illegally tried multiple times, beaten severely, slapped, mocked, spat upon, had, had, had his beard yanked out of his face, blindfolded and punched and told to prophesy, hey, hey, who hit you? They crushed a crown of thorns down on his head, 
gave him a staff and said, look, king of the Jews. It was a mob-like mentality. Stripped him naked, gambled for his clothes, whipped him, so severely beaten that when they put the crossbeam on him, he couldn't walk. He fell down. Someone else had to help him. And when he finally got to Golgotha, the place of the school, drove massive nails through his wrists and feet. And then on the old rugged cross, the Son of God breathed his last. And somehow, despite that brief version of the hostility towards our Savior, the the author of Hebrews wrote, For the joy that lay before him, he endured the cross. So, So if you're a thinker, What's the joy in that cross in that moment? One of the most malicious and brutal ways men have ever been executed. Where's the joy? What is the joy? It's you. It's me. Like it's us. Jesus in that moment was purchasing for his father, sons, and daughters. And not because we're worthy, but because of the great love that God has for us. The joy sent him to the cross. In that wrath-absorbing moment, he purchased sons and daughters. Why? Because you're dearly loved. You're chosen. And you're holy. God did that for you. God knew you were going to be messy. God knew you were going to fail, be drawn to wicked things. Like He knows. That's what the cross is all about. And the cross is necessary because of our sin, but it's also the picture of just how far God is willing to go because he loves you. So Paul is saying, this is your identity. Before I tell you what to do, your identity drives your action. So now look at, Look at the action. So we talked about identity. Now look at action. Put on compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Compassion, just empathy. How are you? Kindness, the consideration of others. Humility, which is contrary to our culture. In our culture, pride is a virtue. You go look in any book in the Western world and humility is not listed as a virtue. We wonder why we're such a prideful people. We're training our kids to be that way. Humility, meekness, strength under control. You can be tough and tender. Patience, which is a bit of a big one for me. I'm the type of guy that feels like speed limit is for those who can't drive. (laughs) Patience. But you've been given an identity so that it will produce certain actions, so that as the body of Christ, we will know what it's like to put on the flesh of Jesus and love one another well, in flesh the Spirit of Christ, bear with one another, love one another. If he's changed us, listen, if he's changed us, then it should change the way we treat one another. And we should be a unique group of people because our identity drives our actions. Verse 13. You're not going to like this one. So we bear with one another and forgiving one another. If anyone has a grievance against one another, just as 
the Lord has forgiven you, so you are to forgive. Forgiveness, which <laughs> it's just giving away what God has given us, which is easy, right? No. Don't some people just annoy the fire out of you? Some people are just, yeah, every nerve. I had one and they stepped on it. People who squeeze the toothpaste from the middle. You know what I'm talking about? Like you start from the end and you just come on. Have some decency. Some people just get on your nerves. And in the middle of conflict, in the middle of frustration, remembering what Jesus has done for us in the middle of that isn't normal. You're driving me crazy! Well, let me first then pause and remember my own sin and what Jesus did for me. Okay, now that, I'm, now that I've reflected, let's talk. That's not normal. We're not supposed to be normal. We're not supposed to act like normal people. We're supposed to act like people who have been chosen and holy and set apart. We've been changed. We should live changed lives. And forgiveness is choosing not to be the final judge, meaning you get off the bench you take off the robe and you hand Jesus the gavel. I'm not the judge anymore. Well, I don't, I don't want to forgive. Because if I forgive them, then they get away with it. And God says, no, 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 no. Remember, I'm the judge. Don't worry about them getting away with it. I want you to get away from it. Get away from that bitterness and a lack of unforgiveness. That, that's rotting your soul. Get away from it. They're not going to get away with it. You get away from it. Because a lack of forgiveness is like drinking poison and then hoping the other person gets sick. That makes sense. Forgiveness. And we're not talking about massive sins here, even though we would forgive those. He says if anyone has a grievance, we're just talking about life. Forgive. Forgiveness is not, though, automatic trust. Forgiveness is free. I give you that. Trust is earned. Forgiveness may not mean complete reconciliation to the way we were. You can forgive someone and still go in a new direction. If you have a business partnership with someone and they cheat and cost you a whole bunch of money, you can forgive them. But if they come back to you and say, hey, let's start another business, no. Forgiveness isn't necessarily something that happens once. It goes on and happens over time. Jesus says, don't just forgive once, but 70 times 7. It's an event and a process. It means I'm canceling the debt. You don't have to pay it. Because I'm not asking God, to treat me in a way that I don't want to treat you. And I'm not saying, God, give this gift to me that I, and I don't want to share it with others. Ultimately, church, you really only believe the parts of the Bible you do. You really only believe the parts of the Bible you do. If you believe them, we do them. So we forgive. Verse 14. Above all, Put on love. Love is the virtue that anchors all of this together, which is the perfect bond of unity. And you underline this in your Bible. Let the peace of Christ. This is in the Greek an imperative, which means command. So this isn't a suggestion. This is a command in the Greek. There's two in this text. I'll show you the other one in a minute. Let the peace of Christ, commandment, to which you were also called in one body, rule in your heart. So the peace of Christ rules over everything. And love isn't just what we say, it's what we do. It's the virtue that holds it all together. And then command the peace of Christ. Think about it from a sports analogy. I know many of you have been around sports. You've probably been around kids sports. And if you don't believe people are evil, just go to a youth sporting event and watch the parents. 
Go, go to a five-year-old t-ball game. Like, it's not going to be that competitive. They're five-year-olds. Gloves on the wrong hand. They ate a crayon for breakfast. It's probably, it's going to take a minute. But there's a command. Let the peace of Christ rule. Think, think about it this way. It's like a contested call. If you watched any football yesterday, there were several contested calls. Was it a catch? Was it not? Was it a fumble? Was it not? And they watched the instant replay. And the team that believes it was a catch, when they say, you know, it could be a catch, they're like, yay! And then we're like, I don't know. Maybe, maybe he didn't get his toe in. They're like, yay! So each side is equally advocating and cheering when it looks like it's going to go their way. But ultimately, a referee makes the call. Could you imagine a professional sports game, like a football game with no referees? That would be the one you pay to go see. <laughs> but ultimately, an umpire makes the call, and you have to accept it. Same thing in, in relationships. Sometimes you, you disagree. You're like, hey, hey listen, we're not going to do that. I feel like we should do that. Uh, you shouldn't do that. Um, it's okay if I do. Hey, that wasn't very nice. I didn't think it was that bad. You disagree. My wife and I call it heated fellowship. You have these moments. In the end, it's a contested call. I, I see it differently, and we don't have the whistle to make the call. So how do you resolve it? It's a contested call. Let the peace of Christ reign. That's the command. Jesus is the head. He he gets to make the call, and your identity drives your actions. So in the moment of a contested call, how do we decide the peace of Christ is going to make the call here? The peace of Christ drives us. Our identity drives our actions. And then verse 16 is the next commandment, imperative in the Greek. Let the word of Christ dwell richly among you. That's a command. And all wisdom and teaching and admonishing one another through the psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. But let the word of Christ dwell richly among you. The word of Christ, that, that's the gospel. That's the good news of Jesus that produces gospel fruit in our lives. It changes our minds, our hearts, and our actions. You, you've probably heard this. Your, your kingdom come, say it with me. Your will be done on earth. Yeah, but when the word of Christ doesn't dwell richly in you, you spend your time saying that in reverse. My kingdom come. My will be done. On earth as boy, I hope it is in heaven too. The gospel, the good news, the word has got to dwell richly in your hearts. Jesus said, man doesn't live by bread alone because your body needs Good food, sure, but so does your soul. Your soul is desperate for good food. If you eat only bad food, you will not only be unhealthy, but listen, do not miss this. If you eat only bad food, then your body physiologically develops a palate and a craving for bad food. What do you want for eat? What do you want to eat? Uh, chicken nuggets and Mountain Dew. That's what I want. That's what I crave. The more sugar you eat, the more sugar you want. The more salt you eat, the more salt you want. If you eat bad food, your body physiologically craves bad food. The same is true for your soul. It's one of the reasons why the only thing we preach here is the word of God. I'm not going to be able to change your life. Jesus can, does, and will. But if you're only feeding your soul 
unhealthy things, your soul just craves unhealthy things. You begin to feed your soul the Word of God. It craves the Word of God. So let it dwell in you. And then he says, sing. Sing. You know what we're going to do that in the kingdom? If you're bored now, get ready. We're going to sing. And I love the way our ladies here sing. You sing so well. Guys, start singing. Come on. Lead. Celebrate King Jesus. Cheer like a team has won. Our team did win. He defeated and conquered death. Sing. Shout. Raise your hands. Sing. I don't sing that well. We'll drown you out. That's why we sing. Sing. It's, it's part of the way God strengthens you. Stop worrying about who's looking at you. Find some freedom and just sing. It's an audience of one. Sing. When we gather, we worship in the word and we worship in song. And then verse 17 says, And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Whatever you do in word or deed. This carries with this this idea of worship. So we often think about worship being this room, but worship happens also when we leave this room. It's an overflow of the Word of God dwelling richly in us, singing and worshiping corporately, that we worship as we scatter in word or deed. Do you see it? So there isn't a delineation of worship and singing and worshiping in word or deed. It's the same. The word of Christ dwells in you. You sing and you worship, and then you leave and you worship. We don't come to church. We are the church, and then we scatter as the church. And we scatter as the church, worshiping in word or deed in a world that is desperately needy for the good news of Jesus. There's no life in this world, no health in this world, forgiveness in this world, and the wisdom of this world leads to death. And they do not know God, and it's all going to come to an end one day. We're surrounded by people who are hurting and sad and desperate. We must scatter with worshipful lives in word and deed. We gather and sing and we scatter and worship. And along the way, we're the church. We gather. We treat one another well because the world needs a picture of people who will love one another regardless of race and ethnicity and background and socioeconomic indifferences. We demonstrate the love of Christ. I don't know what you think the answer to this world is, but you're not going to vote it in, elect it in, buy it in. It's the church being the church. And so gather, we're a body, and our identity drives our action with one another and to the world. And Paul just said, you don't really have an option. You don't got an option here. If you claim to be a follower of Jesus, then this is the path for you. And you're, you're messy, and you're broken, and you got issues, and we're going to argue, and we're going to fight, and we're going to figure it out. And that's part of the beauty of it. So you're not alone, and you don't have to be perfect. Why don't you just come as you are? Join us. Our identity drives our actions.